We've got some breaking news from our governor, Doug Ducey, uh, tweeting out that schools in Arizona will be closed for the remainder of the year. He said, well, this is not Moments ago, I signed an executive order directing Arizonans to stay home, stay healthy, and stay connected. Yeah, I don't think it's unconstitutional. You know, it almost looked like Trump was messing with the governor of Arizona. Handshake. Psych, you idiot. I have lost up to 90% of my revenue. He's going to listen one way or the other. He is going to listen to the people. Do you hear me, Jesse? You are going to hear from Welcome to The Gaggle, an AZ Central podcast where we chat with reporters, experts, and special guests to keep you fully informed on the state's political news. I'm your host, Yvonne Winget Sanchez. I cover national politics for the Arizona Republic. And I'm Ron Hansen, also a national reporter for the Republic. In today's episode, we're talking about the issue that's got everyone talking, from politicians to protesters, business owners and healthcare professionals, and probably even your next door neighbors. It seems everyone's got an opinion on reopening Arizona, and many now have opinions on Governor Doug Ducey, too. So today, we're untangling the messy web of politics that has affected Governor Ducey's decision-making on this matter. We'll break down who's advising Ducey, reasons why his administration sidelined university experts studying COVID-19 and then reversed course, and the political consequences of the governor's handling of the crisis, not just for him, but for other Republican contenders. Joining us today, we have Maria Paletta, who covers the governor's office for us, and Ryan Randazzo, a longtime Republic reporter who covers the intersection of business, utilities, and government. Thanks all for coming on. Of course. Okay, so let's start by catching everyone up to where Arizona's at on this whole timeline with the COVID-19 crisis. Maria, tell us a bit about that. The governor's most aggressive pandemic-related action to date has been, of course, the statewide stay-at-home order. He issued that on March 30th, took effect on the 31st, generally limiting Arizonans to only leaving their homes for essential activities. So food, medicine, exercise, that sort of thing, and that remains in effect. But going all the way back to March 2nd, that's when the governor held his first press briefing on COVID-19. Dr. Kara Christ, the state's Department of Health Services director, was also there. They said they were aware of the situation, were beginning in-house testing, and they said at that time that the risk of Arizonans becoming infected was pretty low. Arizona's in good hands, and I'm confident in this team's ability to manage the situation. Between March 2nd and March 30th, Ducey took incremental steps. On March 11th, he declared a public health emergency. On March 15th, he shut down schools, a decision he announced in a video with State Superintendent Kathy Hoffman. We want to give you the latest information about our schools. We are announcing a statewide closure of all Arizona schools from Monday, March 16th through Friday, March 27th. Today, we are announcing an additional two-week extension of school closures. We've got some breaking news from our governor, Doug Ducey, uh, tweeting out that schools in Arizona will be closed for the remainder of the year. He said, well, this is not the outcome. 
And then on March 19th, he shut down restaurants, bars, gyms, movie theaters, and all the Arizona counties where there were confirmed cases of COVID-19. He did allow bars and restaurants to offer delivery and pickup. And then, as we said, on March 30th, he issued that stay-at-home order. Moments ago, I signed an executive order directing Arizonans to stay home, stay healthy, and stay connected. And we're still experiencing the stay-at-home order, but per his original declaration, that wasn't supposed to be the case. So what happened to the first order's expiration date? The original order was set to expire April 30th, but the day before that was scheduled to happen, the governor held a press conference where he announced he'd be extending the order through May 15th, though he did also announce some modifications to the order at that point. He is now saying the expectation is that the order will expire May 15th, but really that depends on the data. So he'll again have to decide whether or not to extend that order as we approach that date. Okay, so... Ducey's now in the same situation that he was in in late April, only this time he's made the call to extend the order once before. Um, He understands the reactions and the implications of all that. So what were the reactions and the consequences? Uh, Ryan, tell us about the business community first. Sure. Well, we have to go back. You know, the business community was first affected March 19th. Uh, as Maria said, when when uh, bars were closed, dining restaurants were closed, gyms and other businesses. At that time, many businesses had voluntarily shut down. And then uh, the governor issued that order um, and he didn't clarify how long it would last. And recall at the time, schools had only been declared closed for two weeks. So even though they didn't like it, many businesses were willing to do their part. And with the general idea that it was going to be a couple of weeks, most businesses figured they could weather that storm. It's a climbing gym, you know. This is the very first time that we have had to close for something like this in the history of our business in seven years, never before. Can I get through this three-week period? Yes. If another three-week period is is required after that. um... Of course, it's been much more than a couple of weeks. Uh, It's been seven weeks now since that initial order shut down businesses. And then it was followed 11 days later by the broader stay-at-home order. So when he first issued the stay-at-home order, it had been almost two weeks. Businesses thought they would be reopening by them. You know, we've got April 6th, which is a Monday, circled on our calendars as hopefully the day that we're going to welcome back all our members. So they just didn't expect this doubling down at the time. There were plenty of business owners at the time uh, that the stay-at-home order was issued that were questioning quietly, politely, you know, whether there could be a more measured response to the pandemic. And now, uh, you know, that we're several more weeks down the road, those polite questions are being asked in a different tone, uh, a little less polite these days. Okay. And so how about the reaction after Ducey decided to extend his initial order? So leading up to the expiration date of the stay-at-home order, businesses were getting significantly more desperate. Um, They had now missed essentially the key spring season. Uh, Most companies had failed to secure the federal loans and grants that were available. Uh, So many had to furlough or lay off workers. And businesses were definitely becoming concerned that the longer the shutdown lasts, the more difficult it will be to reopen. That not only requires restarting idled kitchens and supply lines, But now, in many cases, it involves recalling workers who have begun collecting unemployment. 
And of course, there are the businesses that vowed to defy the order because people need income to eat and care for their families. I have lost up to 90% of my revenue. I told the police officer, I'm sorry, and he's a really nice guy and a friend of mine, which makes it really hard for him and I. But uh, I'm not going to conform. Maria, how did community leaders and lawmakers react to the news of the extension? The backlash really escalated after Ducey announced he'd extend the order through May 15th instead of letting it expire. House and Senate leadership met with him to press him to fully reopen as soon as possible. State Representative Kelly Townsend has been among the loudest voices at the state legislature. She's called his approach unwarranted and unconstitutional. I'm very frustrated. I'd hate to see. We're already suffering. People are out of work. The number of unemployment um, applications has skyrocketed. I'm sure you guys have seen. And businesses are being decimated. And if we go into further lockdown, it's just going to be the death knell. I don't know how we recover from this. And said she planned to propose a concurrent resolution that, if approved by the legislature, would end the current state of emergency that the governor had declared. Representative Warren Peterson has backed her up, and Senator Michelle Eugenti Rita also said she'd propose a mirror resolution in the Senate. It is important to note that, number one, the legislature would need to be in session, and two, these lawmakers would need to have the votes to overturn the state of emergency for that to happen, and neither of those are likely to happen very soon. But it does speak to the growing frustrations of some GOP lawmakers with Ducey's handling of the crisis. He's really getting a lot of backlash. And the backlash isn't just coming from Republicans. Even early on, he seemed to be walking a tightrope with local mayors. Sure. Earlier, before he had issued the stay-at-home order, the mayors of Flagstaff, Tolleson, Phoenix, Tucson, and some other cities throughout the state had signed a letter really urging him to be more aggressive. Flagstaff Mayor Coral Evans, the first in Arizona to close bars and restaurants on a local level, and later Phoenix Mayor Gallego. Phoenix Mayor Kate Gallego has been a key voice in that. He also was getting feedback from religious groups, faith leaders, um, medical groups, Groups, hospital associations pushing him to be more aggressive in terms of his approach to contain the virus. As Governor Ducey battles over what to do and when local leaders deciding they aren't willing to wait for him to make a move. We also saw U.S. Senator Kirsten Sinema, who generally shies away from weighing in on some of these hot button news developments and controversies, sharply criticizing the governor over and over for not being more bold in moving to contain the new coronavirus. And even after he issued the stay at home order, some of those officials and groups criticized some of the stipulations or the way it was written. For example, people could still go golfing. They, for a while, could visit salons until he later shut that down. So he's gotten a lot of criticism from all sides throughout this process. Okay, so at this point, it seems like the question is, what can we learn from the governor's behavior so far to better understand how he's calculating his decisions going forward. Ryan, what's he weighing on the business front at this point? Well, I mean, I I think it's fair to characterize this as it's just an economic disaster. You know, there are more than half a million Arizonans who have asked for jobless benefits to make up for lost income. That's certainly got to be a concern for the governor. 
Uh, and even though the state has been loath to discuss this, many of those people are unable to collect any benefits because the unemployment insurance program has been flooded. And the state has been unable so far to dole out the federal funds for people who are self-employed or contractors uh, like Uber and Lyft drivers. Those folks normally couldn't collect jobless benefits, but Congress passed the CARES Act so they could. But so far, the state hasn't been able to process those applications. So that's tens of thousands of people who have been out of work for seven or eight weeks. It's going to be another week or so before they can even apply for benefits. And then who knows how long, another week or two before they collect any money. So there's a real human toll to shutting down the economy for this long. Um, and one of the things that was really important to me is really to be able to pay my employees through this time. And then there's the broader concern regarding whether businesses will be able to reopen at all and whether they'll make money if they do reopen, you know, on June 1st or sometime. Summer is typically the slow season for most Arizona businesses outside of things like pool cleaning. In the past, I've heard many small business owners tell me that they would essentially prefer to shut down June, July and August if they could. Um, because they essentially break even or lose money during those months. It's just logistically pretty difficult to actually shutter a business and then rehire everyone and, and keep things going. So they sort of weather through the summer. So businesses that fall in that category, they're not too excited about reopening, you know, in the dead of summer when there's going to be little demand. And they may decide to either fold altogether or just wait until fall, which is what I heard one restaurant owner tell me that she would do rather than reopen during during the slow season. And then backing up even further, that has huge implications for the state because then you've got less sales tax and maybe even property tax revenue coming in because the economy doesn't just fire back up like people initially thought two months ago when this all began. So that's a lot to think about. Um, Maria, help us think about what else may be uh, a factor here for the governor uh, apart from the business considerations. I should first note that the governor has already somewhat changed his tune between the last week of April when he was considering extending the stay-at-home order and the first week of May. So it indicates that political pressure may be influencing him, even though he's insisting that the only thing that has changed is the data. On April 29th, he was taking a very cautious approach, saying that the data at that time didn't support a full reopening of the state's economy in terms of breathing life back into small businesses is we're going to bring back a small step in terms of a revival to Main Street with a partial reopening to retail. He announced a gradual plan and said that the state's progress had involved very hard-fought gains and it would be, quote, irresponsible to push forward if there was a chance he'd have to shut everything down again. We're working with the Arizona Restaurant Association and Steve Chukri within CDC guidance so that we can begin to expand uh, dine-in. Our goal is to do this sometime in May. We are aspirational at this time. The best case scenario, according to the industry, would be on May 12th. But then on Monday, May 4th, he really accelerated those phased reopening plans after protests. Um, it was the day before President Donald Trump was scheduled to touch down in Phoenix. And then, of course, some of the business influence and, and pushback he'd been receiving from business leaders and business owners, as Ryan said. On Friday, May 8th, 
Barbers and salons may reopen. Today, I'm able to give a date certain of Monday, May 11th. Dine-in services can reopen. Okay, so where does that leave us moving forward? Going forward, I think he'll be weighing the same factors he's been using or looking at throughout the pandemic. Public health has been the top concern and it will remain the top concern. He'll be taking advice from Dr. Christ, of course, and the CDC and their guidelines for the public health side. He'll be looking to them and other public health experts. He'll definitely be listening to business owners and leaders on the economic side, as he has been. He's long, even before he became governor and was running, um, presented himself as an ally to the business community. So he, of course, wants to appear friendly to them uh, and receptive to their concerns. And I'm sure he'll still be considering feedback from within his party and from the president. So something seemed to have really changed between April 29th and May 4th, that critical kind of time frame that you referenced. What does it signal that he changed course uh, between that time frame? Well, again, Ducey said he made the choice because testing was expanded and there were declines in reported COVID and flu-like illnesses, as well as the percentage of positive results you were getting as a portion of total tests. So he said that provided a, quote, green light to make some additional decisions, claimed he was really basing those decisions on this three-weekend testing blitz that had started the weekend before he made that uh, announcement and really upped the overall number of tests. But the quick turnaround definitely does make it seem like the pressure on him played a part, especially when you were hearing from lawmakers saying they were meeting with him, that they were calling with him, or excuse me, that they were meeting with him and calling him, including legislative leadership, which so far had been less vocal than some of the just standard lawmakers that didn't hold leadership positions. So as pushback was increasing, there was even, you know, a far-fetched recall effort, uh, a petition for that that was filed on Friday, May 1st. It seemed like that was contributing to his decisions and turn to that quick turnaround. So moving on, how about his constituents? You know, you mentioned that he's changed his tune in the last few weeks, speeding up the reopening, albeit incrementally. That also coincides with President Trump coming to Phoenix and protests of about 500 people or so on the Capitol who are sick of the lockdown. He is going to listen to the people. You know, some were talking about getting violent. And all I'm asking you is to vote them out because I don't want to have to shoot them again. Some people are not happy. So how has all of this public pushback factored into the governor's decisions? It's been interesting because, as we've talked about throughout this, there's been pushback over the course of the pandemic and his decision making, including from constituents who feel that this has all been overblown, that the governor is overreacting, that this is mass hysteria and unnecessary. So that has been fairly consistent. What has increased is, you know, the size, the scope, the frequency of the protests, um, the pushback from lawmakers that, you know, proposed uh 
resolution to overturn his emergency declaration and again the president's visit so it, it the pressure on him has increased over time i do think it's important to note that we've seen you know from polling that the majority of folks are actually more worried about opening too early rather than too late but those are not the people that are showing up at the capitol yelling and screaming with signs that's a really good point. And when we first saw some of these local constituents who were really angry about the governor's stay-at-home order, we noticed that quite a few of them were calling the order unconstitutional. So we took the liberty of calling Paul Bender. Hey, Paul, can you hear me? I'm here. Yes, I can hear you. Okay. I think it's recording now. Okay. He's a constitutional expert at Arizona State University. Here's what he had to say. Yeah, I don't think it's unconstitutional because I think it's done for a constitutional purpose, that is to preserve people's health and safety. And as I said, in an emergency, the governor is really the only one who can do that kind of thing. And I don't know if you're interested in this, but one issue that arises is whether the president can do that. I think the answer to that is no. Uh, the president doesn't have that kind of power. Um, he's never been given it by by Congress, and he is not the person who is, has jurisdiction over things like the streets of of, of Arizona. That's a that's a state thing, rather than a a federal thing. Okay, last question, Maria. There's been reporting about the Department of Health Services asking ASU and U of A researchers to pause their work on researching COVID-19. We know that the Ducey administration was using these researchers' projections to inform their decisions on reopening, but then they said they were just going to use projections from FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency. Can you walk us through that reporting? Sure. So we found out that the same day that the governor had announced he was accelerating his reopening plans, health officials also said that they were going to stop sharing a special set of data they'd previously been giving to those researchers. So that, of course, would affect how comprehensive their modeling is, even if the academics decided to continue. A statement from ASU tonight, interestingly, says they will continue their modeling work, although it says they'll do so without further access to the state's internal data. And we know that just a few days after the Ducey administration essentially reversed course, saying, wait a minute, never mind, we're going to go ahead and continue this partnership. But why would they have ever wanted to stop the university research and the projections and rely solely on FEMA's numbers? I mean, why not use both? Were there political calculations at play here? Well, my first guess would be because the Arizona modeling has not really supported the decisions that the governor has made to date. We were hearing prior to his extension of the stay-at-home order from an epidemiologist at Arizona State that the only he, he had modeled several different potential curves or paths based on different times when restrictions could be lifted. And he said the only one, the slowest curve, which assumed that no restrictions were lifted until the end of May, was the 
the only one that didn't put the state back on a path for exponential growth in COVID-19 infections. Now, how the FEMA model or projections compare, that's a great question because it hasn't been made public. We have asked for it. We've been told by the state that they've requested to make it public and we'll share it when they do have it. But as of now, we could probably guess that those projections are rosier or more friendly to the decisions that state officials are making, but we can't confirm it. All right. Well, that's a lot to think about there. Listeners, we're going to go ahead and transition to some national analysis and some afterthoughts about what all this might mean for the governor. Uh, Ryan and Maria, thank you so much for your expert insights. Where can people find you on Twitter? I am at Utility Reporter. And I'm at M. Paletta. That's M-P-O-L-L-E-T-T-A. So the decision to reopen Arizona is an economics decision. It's a public health decision. But there are political implications. The 2020 election is right around the corner. And any action taken now will be held under a microscope by opponents and judged by voters in November. Yeah, the politics of this are pretty brutal. It doesn't seem like there's any easy decisions to be had. And it's already been a pretty tough year for the governor. Um, he, you know, he started out feeling pressure from the right over his call for red flag laws that deal with gun issues. He also felt some pressure from the left uh, for calling for sanctuary cities. So, you know, his political capital is running kind of low at the moment. And in the midst of this pandemic, he's feeling pressure from people like Democrat uh, Kirsten Cinema in the Senate and also from the White House, which clearly wants to get this economy reopened in time for the president to, you know, make his case to voters in November. So, you know, Yvonne, what, what do you make of the governor's situation here? You know, what are his next steps uh, occupationally and how much does COVID-19 affect all of that? Well, I don't think we know yet what his next steps are going to be politically. Um, he obviously is termed out in the governor's office. Um, there's been some speculation that he would either return to the private sector, like Fife Symington did, former uh, Republican Governor Fife Symington, or perhaps um, you know seek uh, a seat in the U.S. Senate or some other sort of uh, cabinet position if President Trump remains in the White House. I think whatever he does, even if he says it's not being done through the lens of politics, it's going to be judged that way. You also really have to keep in mind that his actions are really going to affect Republican contenders who are on the ballot. I was having a conversation with someone the other day and they said, you know, our success in 2020 is directly tied to how Governor Doug Ducey performs through this crisis. He understands the, the down-ballot implications of, of his actions. And I, I think that, um, you know, whether he likes to admit it or not, the consequences will be seen in November. Of course, the 
two big races that everyone is going to be looking at are the presidential race, where clearly the governor prefers President Donald Trump get a second term rather than Democrat uh, Joe Biden. Um, And then there's the Senate race where you have Martha McSally, uh, the person holding that seat that he appointed her to, uh, running against uh, former astronaut Mark Kelly. Um, Clearly, he's going to have uh, more than just the usual interest in that race, uh, given his political legacy, which we'll explore in a future episode of The Gaggle. Um, How do those races affect the governor's actions and thinking these days? Well, with the presidential race, you have the sitting president, Trump. He was presented with some uh, pretty terrible polling numbers uh, in key battleground states that seem to indicate that support among key constituencies, including seniors, is really eroding. He's going to be looking to people like Governor Doug Ducey to help keep that coalition together. So for the governor, that means that there is a lot of pressure to not make the wrong calls, especially when it comes to some of these long-term care facilities, which are experiencing tremendous amounts of uh, you know, deaths and COVID cases. If he opens the state up too soon and these cases continue to, to skyrocket, you know, these seniors who are specifically vulnerable to COVID-19 and their, their children, their grown adult children, they're not going to be happy. And that ultimately could have a, a really negative effect on Trump. You also have to figure in these suburban voters that we have spent so much time talking about since um, the 2018 cycle. You know, right now, the Trump campaign seems to be really trying to to shore up their their numbers with seniors, but they also have to keep an eye on those suburban voters who were a decisive, you know, faction that helped put Democrat Kirsten Cinema over Martha McSally in 2018. If these voters, you know, aren't feeling safe, they're not feeling secure, they feel like their family is somehow at risk, they might vote for change. So let's talk about the Senate race for just a moment. Uh, the situation with uh, Senator McSally seems, uh, as usual, uh, fairly perilous. She's trying to uh, make herself more available and really um, be seen as as reaching out and trying to serve her constituents in this time of just extraordinary need, um, while not going, you know, at cross purposes with the White House. It, it seems that this has been a pretty difficult period for her uh, to try and navigate. How's she doing in all this? So the polls continually show that she is just being, you know, outdone by Democrat Mark Kelly, who is essentially Democrats' best recruit for this cycle. He's raising a ton more money than McSally is, even though McSally is also raising a lot of money. She really is having a hard time with independence. She's also facing, you know, uh, attacks and criticism from uh, base voters. These are people who are, you know, right of center and folks who really didn't like her position uh, when she said uh, months ago that she would be open to considering red flag gun laws as a way to maybe prevent some of these mass shootings that we've seen. Um, And... uh, 
there are continued concerns over her health care record. Uh, you were seeing Democrats and moderate Republicans even continually invoke her uh, votes to repeal the um, Affordable Care Act, which was installed by Democrats led by President Barack Obama. So I would expect to, you know, see her continue to play up her role as a senator and to talk a lot on national TV and local TV about the work that she is doing as a senator, not as a candidate, to help the people of Arizona. So what does this mean for all of you listeners, the voters? Well, don't bet on an end to the partisan attacks. That part never goes away. Um, former President George W. Bush has tried to appeal to our better angels with his recent video calling for an end to partisanship during this pandemic. But the anger, the fear, the vitriol, um, it makes for good political ads. And so don't worry, you'll get to hear plenty of those in the months ahead. Well, that's it for today, Gaggle listeners. Thank you so much for listening to our show. And if you liked it, please rate it and review it on your podcast app. You can find me on Twitter at Yvonne Winget. And you can find me at Ronald J. Hansen, and that's H-A-N-S-E-N. This episode was edited and produced by Taylor Seeley with oversight from Katie O'Connell. Audio in this episode was gathered from Channel 3, Channel 15, and The Rachel Maddow Show on MSNBC. We'll see you next week.